Exodus 3, hear the word of the Lord. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go... You shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes... Aggressive questions can be a big help to us as long as we take them seriously and overlook any insult that is part of the question. If somebody says to you, who do you think you are? 
Well, you know, that's actually a good question, isn't it? Now, they may be meaning it uh, to insult you, but it's a good question to stop and think, you know, who do I think I am? Or somebody says to you, why do you think you're so smart? Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? To stop and say, why is it that I think I'm so smart? Or uh, somebody might ask, do you think you're better than others? Well, that's a good question to stop and ask. Do, do, I, do I think I'm better than others? So if we can overlook the, the insult that's part of these questions, that we can learn some things if we'll actually take them seriously. We, we heard a question last week, and it looked like a question to put somebody in his place. It was an aggressive Hebrew who was striking a fellow Hebrew, and Moses came upon the two, and Moses tried to reconcile these two Hebrews, and he spoke to the one who was being aggressive with the other, and he, he tried to, to get them to reconcile with each other. And the man asked him, who made you judge and prince over us? And he was trying to put Moses in his place. But that's actually a very, very good question. Because if we look at the, the narrative up to that point, the answer to that question is what? Nobody. Nobody. We don't find anybody in the text making Moses the judge and the prince over the people. It looked like Moses just, it occurred to him and he went out and he, he tried to do something that would, would lead to the deliverance of his people. But this is a really good question. Moses, under whose authority are you doing this? Who made you? Who appointed you judge and ruler over us? Well, Moses, after that failed attempt to deliver the people and after this question really put him in his place and Afraid of the king's edict, the king wanted to kill him. Moses fled into the desert. He got married to a, a shepherdess, a, a daughter of a, a priest who also had flocks, and he settled down to domestic life, apparently giving up on the idea that anything would ever happen to his people. And, and as we look at the narrative, uh, as it's interpreted later, it looks like he settled down for 40 years. He left Egypt when he was 40, and when we pick up the story again here, he's about 80 years old. And now, in the text we have today, quite unexpectedly, there is a different answer to that question. A new and surprising answer to that question, who made you judge and ruler over us? So we pick up the narrative here with Moses working for his father-in-law, and we already heard his father-in-law named Reuel, and now we have another name for his father-in-law, Jethro. We learned that he was a priest. It's kind of mysterious. We're not sure exactly a priest of which god or what gods, but a priest in Midian. We don't know exactly where Midian was, but somewhere probably to the east of Egypt. And he was doing what he was tasked to do. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, that is probably back towards Egypt in some direction, to a mountain called Horeb, Horeb. This is also called Sinai, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and it's also called the Mountain of God. We don't know exactly where that is. There are different candidates, different ideas about where that mountain is, but uh, it's called here the Mountain of God, and it's called the Mountain of God in retrospect because that's where God appeared to Moses, and that's where God eventually would meet with his people. Now, here it says, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Our word angel just means messenger, 
the messenger of the Lord. And if you go back in Genesis, you do find this mysterious person who is called the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord sometimes looks like a messenger from the Lord, distinct from the Lord, but then all of a sudden he seems to be the Lord himself. And we see the same sort of ambiguity here, because first it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And this was a sight that was uncommon, perhaps not the fact that there was a bush that was on fire, that maybe wasn't so uncommon, but there was something unusual about this bush. The bush was on fire, but the bush was not being consumed. The fire just kept going, and it wasn't consuming the bush. So the the fire seemed to have an existence that was apart from the bush. The, The fire seemed to exist on its own without needing to depend on the normal things that keep a fire going. And Moses, who who knew something about bushes and knew something about fire, said, this is an unusual sight. And so he said to himself, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. You see, that was the mystery here. Why the bush is not burned. Now look at verse 4. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Now wait a minute. Who was in the bush? Well, it says the messenger of the Lord was in the bush. And now it says that the Lord appeared to him and God spoke to him out of the bush. So it's using messenger of the Lord, the Lord and God as one being here by different designations. And he called to him and he said, Moses, Moses. And sometimes you hear that Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob, it's repeated to get their attention. Moses, Moses. And then he responded in the normal way that you would respond to a summons. He responded by simply saying, here I am. And then there's this warning, don't come near. Verse 5, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, holy means separate. It's, it's separated, it's, it's, it's set apart for, for a, a divine use. And it's saying, take off your sandals, don't come near. It doesn't really explain why not to keep the sandals on, why to be barefoot, but uh, there are various ideas about that. But it, it could simply be, uh, well, a couple of ideas that are probably pretty, pretty, pretty obvious here. One is, um, this is how a servant would be. Servants all often served, slaves often served barefoot. And so before a greater person, a sign of respect and humility would be to take your shoes off. But there's another very simple explanation. Moses was what? He was a shepherd. And guess how his his shoes would have been? How would his work boots be? They would have been really, really nasty. And so to this day, uh, to this day in many cultures, when you go into a, a building, what do you do? you take your shoes off. Why? Because your shoes are dirty and you don't want to get this clean place dirty. It's interesting that later we're going to be looking at, not in great detail, but looking at some some provisions for the tabernacle where people, the priest would go in and meet with God. And it describes the outfit of the, the priests. And it describes them almost from head to toe, what they were to wear. But there are no shoes described. 
And then a couple other places in Exodus, it says that the priests should wash their feet. So it looks like the priests ministered in the tabernacle barefoot with clean feet. And so we may have an anticipation of that. When you approach God, you don't approach God with your muddy shoes. You approach God by showing your humility, but also removing that that filth before you come into his presence. Well, here, God identifies himself, and he says, I am the God of your father. Verse 6. Notice it didn't say fathers. He'll say that later. But here he says, I'm the God of your father. And so he's connecting himself to Moses' father. Now, you remember that Moses had Hebrew parents, Levite parents, but then Moses was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But he's referring to his Hebrew father. He says, I'm the God of your father. So I have a close connection with your family line. And then he says, not only that, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses did what uh, we find happens uh, when God appears to people in some fashion or another. Moses hid his face. In our confession time, we read about even the, the angels, the seraphim, as they fly around in God's presence, they, they hide their face. Later on this same mountain, uh, Elijah would have a, a vision of God. And when he saw that vision of God, what did he do? He, he hid his face. He did not want to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. And then we find in verse 7, we find a repetition of what we heard last week. Do you remember last week? We, we saw in verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and God knew. And then in verse 7, we, we read that the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. The same verbs here. I see, I know, I have heard. And he says, I'm coming to do it. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them into their own land. It's a good land. And this is the first time you've heard that expression, a land flowing with milk and honey. it's an expression that goes all through the Old Testament. This is the first time it's mentioned, a land flowing with milk and honey. But we will see later that there's a problem with that land, and that is that it's an occupied land. And here there's seven nations that are mentioned. There are other lists, up to ten nations, that occupy that land. And some of those occupants are mentioned here, but that's that's a problem for later. But at this point he says, I promise that I will give you that land. And that land he had already promised to whom? He had promised that land to Abraham. He had promised that land to Isaac. He had promised that land to Jacob, but they didn't own any of it except a small burial plot. But he says, I'm going to give you this land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I am that same God. And then you can imagine Moses is elated. Moses was concerned about his people. Do you remember 40 years ago? He wanted to help his people. He made an attempt to deliver his people. It didn't work. But now God comes along and says, I am going to do this. So you can imagine Moses thinking, this is wonderful. I wasn't able to. I made an attempt 40 years ago. It didn't turn out well. God's going to do it. All is well and good. God is going to do it. And then there is this shocking call in verse 10. Come, I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now that was not 
in the works. That was not in the plan for Moses. Moses, 40 years, half his life, he's been, he's been giving himself to helping his father-in-law, he's been raising his family, and all of a sudden, 40 years after his failed attempt, God comes along and says, you, you're going to go. Now what we have in the rest of this chapter and in the next chapter, we have questions and objections. And we have a conversation going on between God and Moses. So we're going to see the first two questions today, and then there are a couple of objections he brings up next week. And the first question is in verse 11. It's the obvious question. Moses says, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, there are a number of things that could be behind that. He could just be saying, who am I? I'm I'm an old man now. He could be saying, who am I? I've been gone for 40 years. Who am I? I I tried this once and I made a mess of it. I I ended up killing somebody. So, so who am, who am I? I am, I'm a very unlikely candidate. And, and many of the people that were alive when, when, when I was there, they wouldn't be alive anymore. They wouldn't even remember anything about me. Who am I, Lord? This is, this is not a good idea. I'm not, I'm not a good candidate for this sort of thing. Now, God didn't answer his question. Moses asked the question, who am I? And so we might expect him to say, well, you're a, you're a good guy. You're, you're strong. You're still able to take care of sheep and build him up and tell him you're, you're a really good candidate for this. But he doesn't talk about Moses, does he? His answer is this. And this is an answer you see all through Scripture when God calls upon people to do something that is very, very clearly way beyond their ability. He says to them, and like he says here to Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? And God answers with, that's not the question. The question is not, who are you? The, the, the issue is here, I will be with you. I told you, I will deliver I will be with you. He says, I will be with you. And then he says, and I will give you a sign, a sign that I will be with you. But notice this sign, how this sign works. In verse 12, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's the sign. So once you've done what I'm telling you to do, then there will be a sign because you will come back to this place with the people. Now, notice that that sign is something that he will get only if he does what God has told him to do. So this this call, now he'll get some signs in the next chapter that were immediate, but the, the mega sign here, the big sign is here, I will demonstrate to you that I'm with you and that I've sent you once you've done everything I've told you to do. So he had to step out and do it before he had the sign. And then Moses has another question. And this is, it's it's sort of hard to know how to take this other question because it's a hypothetical sort of thing. Moses comes up with this, this possibility. He says, well, if I actually do what you're telling me to do, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and if I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And if they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So he seems to be saying, well, 
I'm, I'm thinking about this and, and I'm sort of playing the scenario out in my mind. And if I were to do this, and if I were to go and go back to Egypt and just show up and say, here I am, and God has told me to come and deliver you from Egypt. And they say, who sent you? Excuse me? Who sent you exactly? And, and, and what is his name? Now, that question about what is his name, it, it could be, in Moses' mind, it could be asking for information. Maybe they forgot God's name during all these hundreds of years, and maybe they're saying, please remind us, what is God's name? Or they could be something of a credential. Say, what's his name? We want you to pass this test. Make sure you get this right. Then we'll, then we'll think about believing you. And here we have God's response. And this is one of the most fascinating and studied texts, maybe in all of Scripture, certainly in Exodus, where God responds and explains who he is. And when he says here in verse 14, God said to Moses, it's translated here, I am who I am. That also could be translated in the future, and that is, I will be who I will be, or I will be what I will be. Now, you might wonder at that, that answer, because it's an answer that on the one hand says something, but on the other hand leaves a lot to be desired, a lot, a lot of question marks, doesn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't explain everything. In fact, it, it, it leaves a lot open. And it seems to be that's the idea here. If, if we focus on the, if we translate it in the present tense, I am who I am, what is God saying about himself? He's saying, I'm the one who exists. I exist because I exist. Now, that seems to be part of the message here, because remember the flame? What was the message of the flame? We have a flame that doesn't go out. And it doesn't depend on anything else for its own existence. It is a self-existent flame. And so it looks like that is at least part of the message here. Do you want to know who I am? I am the God who really exists. And there's going to be a series of showdowns between the God who really exists, the God who is, and these other false gods. And he's going to, there's going to be this battle of these gods between the God who is and these gods of Egypt. But, but also, if we translate it, which is, which is perfectly legitimate and maybe even preferable in the future, I will be what I will be. I will be who I will be. It doesn't mean that God will be changing, but it's similar to this idea of the sign. The sign is what? It's in the future. When will Moses when will Moses have the sign? He will have the sign in the future once he has done what God has called him to do. And so it could be this name is saying, I will be what I will be and you come along and you will see what I will be. That is to say, I will be revealing myself. You want an answer who I am? The Israelites want an answer who I am? Well, they will have to come along and follow and they will see who I am as I encounter the gods of the Egyptians. So he will reveal himself more and more and more. Now, um, there is then, it, it, it's a little, a little complicated perhaps, but in verse 14 he says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And he said, say to the people of Israel, here's your answer, 
I am, or I will be, has sent me to you. And this is the verb to be. So I am, I will be, has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. Now, I want you to notice that in, in this translation, in most of our modern translations, when we have the, ver, the, the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it stands for the personal name of God. And we don't know exactly how that was to be pronounced. We, we say something like Yahweh. Uh, we don't have the, the vowels. We have the consonants in the Hebrew. So it's like Y-H-W-H. And we have to fill in the vowels there. And, and the, I, the, this word is, is kind of mysterious. It's the personal name of God. But it's very close to the verb I am. It's not exactly the same, but it seems to be a play on that. So there, there are a couple of steps here. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Tell them that I am sent you. And my name is I am-ish. It's, it's a play on that word. And it's his personal name. So tell them that the Lord has sent you. And then he says, this is my name. But this is not a new God. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He has sent me to you. This is one God. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. And then he says that you will go, you'll talk to the elders, verse 16, and you will tell them that the God of our fathers has has remembered us. He has seen us. He will bring us into the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land that's flowing with milk and honey, the land that has all these inhabitants. And then verses 18 to 22, we have a, a, an announcement of what would happen when Moses did all this. And he says basically this, the elders, well, they'll listen to your voice. And you'll go to the king of Egypt, and you will say to the king of Egypt, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who is, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's the opening salvo. That's the opening request. Now, obviously, they want more than that, but they start with a reasonable request. That is, give us, let's say, a week's vacation, three days out, and then we have a a time of sacrifice three days back. That's the opening request. It's a reasonable request, and that's what they start with. But he says in verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and do what? Strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. This is the same verb of Moses striking the Egyptian. Forty years ago, Moses struck an Egyptian. God says, I will strike the Egyptians with all these wonders that I will do in it. And after that, they will let you go. But you're not going to go out empty-handed because when you go out, I am going to tell you, and especially the women, to ask all of their neighbors and friends for silver and for gold and for clothing, and you will go out not empty-handed. You will go out having plundered the Egyptians. In other words, you will go out of Egypt not as slaves but as a conquering army having plundered the Egyptians. So what do we have here? We have a summary of the next eight chapters of Exodus. So this is, this, is a, this is a very helpful table of contents about the next eight chapters of Exodus. So verses 18 to 22, this is what we have in store. 
This is what's going to happen. So we, we know what's going to happen. We're going to see how God does this. In other words, we're going to learn about God. He says, I will be who I will be. And you will see as I do it. You will see as I reveal myself who I am. Your question is, who is the, who is this God? Well, I'm going to show you who this God is as I do all these things that I have just announced. And that's actually, that's actually how we find all of scripture set up. Scripture is an, is a revelation about God, but it's not everything at once. It is little by little by little. And so we could ask, who is the God of the Bible? Well, he's the God who goes on revealing himself more and more and more and more. And as we go through Exodus, we're going to learn, going to learn more and more and more about who God is and how great he is. But as we continue to march through the scriptures, we find that he continues to reveal himself until he has revealed himself in the maximum expression so that we could know him. He revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, it's remarkable that when he was identifying himself to the Jews and they were asking him the question, who are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you say that you are? And he was showing them wonders, even as God shows wonder to the Egyptians. He was showing them signs to point to who he was. And he was also instructing them. And then he said in John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And he made a, an allusion to the, the name of God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And, and, and that's, that's quite a remarkable statement. But we know that, that we're not misinterpreting it because other New Testament writers pick that up. And they are so bold as to take texts of the Old Testament that have the word, the name Yahweh, the Lord, all capital letters, they refer to Yahweh, and they quote these scriptures, and instead of the word Yahweh, they put in Jesus. And so this was not a a misunderstanding or a, 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 a misinterpretation on our part. When we hear Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. Well, Paul tells us that yes, that that's the maximum revelation of of this God who exists. He has shown himself to us in Jesus Christ. Just an example, 1 Corinthians one thirty one In the Old Testament, it says, let, let the one who boasts, boasts in Yahweh. But here we find, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we know the Lord here is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have in, in Romans chapter 10, that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. Verse 13. And in this context here, it's everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, you may or may not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, but that is what the New Testament teaches about him, that he is Yahweh become one of us. That is his maximum revelation to us. And having revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, He also, like he gave to Moses, he gave us a mission that is well beyond our ability to fulfill. When there were just a handful of disciples, when he was about to ascend to his father, he gave that little handful of disciples a mission that was well beyond their capacity to fulfill. He said to you, 
to us, to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, if you understand the magnitude of that command, and if you understand that 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 command is for all Christians in all time together to fulfill, then, well, you might say something like Moses said, who who am I? Who am I to be part of something so huge? But I I want you to notice something. Those few disciples took Jesus at his word, and they went out. And what's the secret to their success? Why are we here today as Christians? Think about that. We're a long way away and a long time since those few disciples in Galilee received that commission. And they did their job and others have done their job until us. And it's gotten to us. What's the key? Well, do you remember what what the answer that God gave to Moses? Moses said, who am I? And what was God's answer? I will be with you. Does that sound familiar? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you. Does that sound familiar? I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, if if you take seriously the scripture and that mission that God has laid upon us and many other things that he tells Christians to do, and you don't tremble and say, who am I? Then either you don't understand the mission that's been given to us or you don't understand your own inability. It it is an overwhelming thing to be tasked by God to be his hands, his feet, his voice, his body in the world. And so, well, we might say, Lord, who, who are we? Who are we to be tasked with such a mission? And the answer comes back to us. What is it? That's not the question. The answer is, who am I? God says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So, Moses eventually had a good answer to the question of that aggressive Hebrew. What was the, what was the Hebrew's question? Hebrew's question was, who made you judge and ruler over us? Well, Moses go, could go back with a good answer this time. He could go back and say, Oh, you want to know? Well, the answer is the God of my father, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the Lord, the one who is, the one who will be, the one who is what he is, the one who will be who who he will be. He's the one. Any more questions? And as we're out doing what God has told us to do, we'll get some good questions. We'll, We'll get questions like, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are telling me that I need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved and that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life? What audacity do you have to be telling me this? Who do you think you are? And what's our answer to that? Nobody except a sinner saved by grace, a sinner who's been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's who I am, if you want to know. And and. And and also, who appointed you? Who appointed you to come tell me this? Well, if you want to know, 
The one who appointed me to tell you this is the same one who appointed Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. The the God who is, the God who reveals himself, the God who is self-existent, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the deliverer whose name is Jesus. He's the one who commissioned me to come to you with this good news that he delivers all who trust in him. Let's pray. Our God, when we take seriously your commands, your commission, we, like Moses, want to beg off and want to flee and say, who are we to be able to do something like that? And we thank you that even as you told Moses, Jesus told us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we pray that even if it's with fear and trepidation, that we would step out and that we would speak a word for Jesus, that we would declare to our next door neighbor and to the nations that Jesus is the true God, that Jesus is the deliverer of all who trust in him, the one who died, the one who rose, the God who is. And we pray, O God, that you would make our witness for Jesus effective, that you would use vessels like us, weak as inadequate as we are, that you would use us to deliver your people. We pray in Christ's name.